0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigut. Glad to have you with us as we start the week, the final few days of June before we move into the 4th of July holiday later this week. Um, I'm you're, I hope you're all getting set to have a good holiday. But we have a lot to talk about before we get to the holiday, so let me introduce the panel right away. It's Monday, which means Jim Galloway, the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, is with us. Jim, thanks for being here today.
2: No, I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to the conversation. We've got a lot to hit up.
1: We do. And um, one of the things we're going to do, you know, you know how much our listeners love putting current news, political news, in historical context. And a little later in the show, you're going to help us with that uh, because uh, you you reminded us of a great story about Governor Talmadge interfering <laughs> with the university system of Georgia and the consequences of it. And it's uh, it's a good story to tell right now when we're all waiting to see whether pressure to get Sonny Perdue named to that uh, job of chancellor is in fact going to move forward. So we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. Uh, We're also joined today by um, Karen Owen, political science professor for the University of West Georgia. Hi, Karen.
3: Hi, good morning. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Have things slowed down a little bit for you now that uh, classes are well over and I assume grades are turned in? Are you as busy as ever?
3: Well, I have decided to spend a little bit of time this summer researching, so I do stay busy.
1: What are you working on?
3: I'm working on a new book project looking at some women who ran for office in Alabama during the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. They were involved in serving in these constitutional offices, so we're kind of investigating all these unique roles the women played in Alabama.
1: Oh, and we should tell our listeners, we've mentioned it before, but it's always worth repeating that, in fact, you have developed um, a lot of research and looked very closely over the years at women, their role as elected officials, and particularly at how women who are in office serve as mentors for those who are looking to get into office, right? Right.
3: Yes, that is my primary research focus. I enjoy studying the unique roles women play and how they encourage others to run for office and get involved in politics.
1: Okay. Well, we're glad you're here with us. We also have Kurt Young here today. He, of course, is political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. Kurt, are you going to have a nice summer? Are you, like Karen, working through it? Well, the summer started off with a couple
4: of couple bumps, but it's going to be smooth sailing going forward, I promise you that. And in fact, I was pleased to hear uh, Karen's uh, summer work. I'm going to be doing the same thing, uh, working on a book project myself and trying to get it finished before August comes rolling around. Okay, and what is your book about? I'm looking at the disputes, disagreements, confrontations within the Pan-African movement in the 20th century. Uh, And also, I I have a bit of a history background as well, so I'm going to be listening carefully to uh, uh, Jim's discussion on the historical points today.
1: Okay, terrific. Julianne Thompson is here with us. You know her as a longtime Republican strategist, activist in the state Republican Party. Um, Hi, Julianne. I'm glad you're back on the show.
0: Good morning. Thank you for having me, Bill.
1: Sure, sure. Very glad that you're here. All right, let's get right to it. Um, Jim, shortly after Political Rewind went off the air on Friday, we got big news out of Washington. Merrick Garland held a news conference to announce that the Department of Justice is filing suit against the state of Georgia over certain portions of the new Georgia election law. Garland had said a couple of weeks ago that uh, DOJ would be expanding its voting rights unit to look at state election laws that were being passed mostly by Republican legislatures this session, during these current sessions or just past sessions. And in fact, the first case he is bringing is against Georgia. Let's listen to just a little of what uh, Garland said as he announced this lawsuit.
5: Today, the Department of Justice is suing the state of Georgia. Our complaint alleges that recent changes to Georgia's election laws were enacted with the purpose of denying or abridging the right of black Georgians to vote on account of their race or color in violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Several studies show that Georgia experienced record voter turnout and participation rates in the 2020 election cycle. Approximately two-thirds of eligible voters in the state cast a ballot in in the November election just over the national average. This is cause for celebration. But then in March of 2021, Georgia's legislature passed SB202. Many of that law's provisions make it harder for people to vote. The complaint alleges that the state enacted those restrictions with the purpose of denying or abridging the right to vote on account of race or color. So
1: um, among the provisions that this lawsuit challenges are a shortened absentee ballot request period that moves the deadline uh, to 11 days before the election. It used to be it got four days uh, to request an absentee ballot. Stricter identification requirements for requesting and returning an absentee ballot a limit on the placement hours and number of absentee drop boxes, and a crackdown on voters casting provisional ballots for voting outside their uh, assigned uh, precincts. Jim, there are now eight lawsuits pending uh, based on SB 202, but when the feds come in, that's big news.
2: Yeah, this is the big one. And uh, it, 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 but... (sighs) To me, what it does is it guarantees that voting is going to be the topic of the 2022 cycle in Georgia, uh, because this lawsuit is going to proceed slowly. It's not going to be a, a very uh, fast one. And uh, we had uh, uh, Chuck Bullock uh, on on the on the show a while ago. And it, it, the difference here is the difference here is before t- before. 2013. Uh, uh, we just missed the past the uh, eighth anniversary of, of the striking down of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Before that, a, a the it, the burden was on the state to show that its changes in election law were not discriminatory. Now the burden is on the federal government. It's going to have to show intent. On on the part of uh, uh, Republican uh, uh, lawmakers in, in Georgia, that this is what they intended, and race was at the bo- at at the bottom of those attempts, intents, intents. Uh, and that's uh, I I I don't know how much you, uh, of of the debate uh, of of this year's debate you recall, but but Republicans were pretty carefully to cleanse their 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 their, their, their statements uh, with only a, a few slips here and there. Uh, I think one of the uh, it, it was mentioned by Garland, one of the one of the uh, more egregious slips, I think, is is that the ban on uh, uh, offering uh, water to voters in line. I mean, that's uh, uh, I think that that's probably going to come out and be the most understandable and most transparent uh, 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 kind of uh, indicator.
1: Um, Kurt, I think we, it is important to go back, as uh, uh, Jim uh, reminds us, uh, Charles Bullock did when he was on the show a week or so ago. Uh, this all comes after uh, the Supreme Court, in a very important decision back in 2013, removed pre- what we call preclearance, where, where any change to any kind of aspect of voting in the state of Georgia and a number of other states that were covered by preclearance, had to be processed by the Department of Justice, approved by the Department of Justice, before they could go forward. And, and Kurt, Jim, makes a really excellent point. Uh, now the burden is on the feds to prove there's a problem, not on the state to prove that what it did isn't uh, somehow in violation of civil rights law.
4: Well, one of, one of the challenges of civil rights law has always been this challenge of intent. Jim is right, That, that that's a major hurdle. And uh, you see it in the affirmative action cases, you've seen it in a number of other types of race-based cases, this, 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 necess- this necessity of proving intent. Now, something has happened since January. Um, the point made earlier that there was very uh, much care taking and ha- taken in how these uh, various initiatives and uh, resulting laws were crafted to be careful to avoid uh, 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 any kind of entanglement with with regard to intent. So something that's happened in January, January 6th, to be specific, Um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, I think uh, um, made the connection where he said that, and I'm paraphrasing that uh, uh, past evidence could not be used to support current or contemporary remedies, right? Um, And so, and he also premised that on this notion that disparity was beginning to, uh, racial disparity in voting, it was beginning to reside. Now, with the politicizing of the 2020 elections, and then also the mobilizing of uh, uh, these types of legisl- legislative responses to the 2020 election, uh, based upon uh, uh, manufactured, manufactured mythical, and, and, and in many cases outright uh, uh, um, lies about the 2020 election, now pretends to provide the evidence that Roberts was saying was not in existence anymore. And so uh, we're looking at uh, some very interesting uh, uh, waters in the, in the uh, coming uh, months with regard to this case and how it connects to the 2020 elections and specifically what we saw occur in January.
1: Julianne, a lot of Republicans reacted with some outrage um, to this uh, federal lawsuit particularly and said it was partisan uh, politics, um, and and I think they look and say we've shown enough evidence in this vast law, this almost hundred pages of uh, new law, that we've expanded, we've done some things to make it easier for people to vote in the state, and and it seems to me there is a mixed bag here of uh, things that might be more helpful and things that might be help might be more in keeping with uh, DOJ, what G- DOJ is concerned about. Your thoughts on that, Julianne?
0: Well, first of all, I personally, I think that there's been a lot of misinformation out there concerning this law, um, specifically talking about the water restrictions that, that Jim mentioned uh, a little while ago. There are no water restrictions as far as camp, as far as election workers giving out water to people that are standing in line. Those restrictions are, were put in place specifically to deal with campaign workers and partisan observers from being able to pass out any type of snacks or beverages to people that were in line to, to not violate any sort of campaign rules. And that was turned into a very, very uh, partisan political accusation game with regard to people not being able to get water while they're in line. Uh, But, yes, I think that that there is a lot of talk among Republicans um, at the disappointment in the way that this has been handled. I think if you look at the recent statement from the Republican attorney general, Chris Carr, uh, he he stated this isn't a lawsuit at all. It's a campaign flyer and that he was very, very disappointed in the politicalization of of this lawsuit. And he says anyone that looks at our law can see that it improves security and transparency, and that's why it's going to be upheld. So I think that that is the way that Republicans are looking at it. And also with regard to the the mention of the drop boxes, the drop boxes didn't even come into play in in the state of Georgia until the 2020 election, and they were put in – place to protect people from having to be able to be exposed to COVID. So that is a brand new thing that didn't even come into being in the state of Georgia until 2020 anyway. And they haven't been taken away. They've just been limited in the placement
3: of those drop boxes. Karen? So, uh, you know, in the context of this current lawsuit, it is about the recent, you know, uh, Election Integrity Act. And it's very specific and narrowed looking at those absentee ballots as you discussed. But when we think about it, I feel like over the last few years, voting and voting access has become the ticketed of campaign messaging you know, who has access. And this started in 2018. We've seen lots of different lawsuits that came after the gubernatorial election here about our voting system. If we think back into 2019, we were looking at what about signature matches. We were talking about whether we needed a paper ballot uh, with our electronic machines. And then the state changed, and we went to a new voting system. And so all of these kind of election administration and changes are in the backdrop of this current lawsuit, I feel like. And we can't kind of forget that, that this has been part of our political dialogue now for several years. And then also, you know, when I think about when the legislature went into session in January... Yes, they were coming off the hills of the 2020 November election and the runoff, but they were also looking at some polling and some ideas here in Georgia where people were concerned about um, over a majority of Georgians polled in an AJC poll were concerned about ineligible voters casting ballots they were not as concerned about limiting voting access. They were concerned about ineligible voters. They were talking about over half people were looking at wanting more safeguards. So I think the legislature was hearing some of that and acting upon it. Now, we could also debate about the process and how that works, and I think that's where these lawsuits are coming into play. And we'll address and see if they can see that the lawmakers' intent was not about administration but perhaps was really focused on limiting the absentee balloting process and how that would work
1: yeah jim a couple points to pick up on here and um i'd love your reaction i mean number one julian uh, makes the point that uh for the most part she, republicans believe this law uh, is about improved security among other things well you know, and, and this becomes part of the problem here. We don't see any we don't have any evidence that there was a need for improved security until uh, Donald Trump began uh, uh, insisting that the election was rigged against him and the Republican uh, uh, meme that be developed and has been developing for some time now about uh, the uh, enormous amount of fraud at the at polling places, which has never been proven to be true. So the underlying thinking about the law in some ways. Uh, On the Republican side of the aisle, their way of framing some of this is one of the reasons people seem somewhat suspicious of it to begin with. And and that's a problem. Um, But Julianne is quite right. Uh, The drop boxes were um, put into place in 2020 as a way to help people during the pandemic cast a ballot. It was really a service that was offered to people now they've actually been uh, established in law as being uh, things that people will be able to use from now on. That's good. On the other side of it, there are those who think that the restrictions, they've got to be inside a polling place that has to be managed at the time, um, is going to make it harder for people who work long hours to get their ballot dropped off. So you know, it is so interesting how you can look at this law on both sides and decide for yourself, yes, it's an attempt to uh, uh, repress votes. Oh, no, it's not at all. We're doing good things for the people of Georgia. And I guess that's what the courts are going to have to decide.
2: Right. And it's and it's, and it's it's going to uh, get down to, to, to some very fine detail because what you have to remember, of course, this is a state on the cusp of turning from red to blue. Uh, I mean – uh, Brian Kemp won his election by what fifty-five thousand votes, not more. Uh, 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 David Perdue was unseated in, uh, in uh, 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 for, it was ousted from the Senate in part because he fell under the he got what forty-nine point seven percent of the of of the vote in the no, November third election. So what you're what you're seeing here, if you talk to any Democrat, uh, what what they're going to tell you is what we're seeing here is a system of point shaving. You're not trying to be terribly overt in, in, in discouraging voters, but you're trying to shave a percentage point here, a percentage point there. And, and uh, one example of that might be uh, the, uh, the, the, the new restrictions on provisional ballots cast in precincts uh, when a voter goes to the wrong precinct. And, and and wants to vote. This happens more often than than not in in, in precincts do, dominated by people of color, uh, in part because uh, because uh, uh, the locations where these where these uh, where these votes are 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 are, are where where voters uh, go to go to vote are uh, they're constantly shifting, and the, the the law now says if you if you if you are voting in the wrong precinct. Uh, and do that before five o'clock, then you, you're, you're turned away. It, your body is turned away, and you have to go to the right one. After five o'clock, you're allowed to cast a provisional ballot. Now, you know, I'm I'm going to be very interested in hearing what a judge, a judge, ask uh, the state. You know, why do, why is it why is the law read one way at four fifty-five and another way at five o five? Uh, that that that's 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 going to be a a, a nice argument.
1: So we should make an important point here. We, We expect this week to hear from the United States Supreme Court on this very issue. They're they're deciding two election cases in Arizona. And one of them does, in fact, have a very similar provision. It's that if you cast in Arizona by state law... A ballot in the wrong precinct, your entire ballot is thrown out by our, by Arizona law. In other words, you may not you you may be voting for a governor, a statewide official, an attorney general, whatever. Uh, that ballot's cast is 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 thrown out. Uh, sure, you shouldn't get to vote maybe for the local official in a community that you're not actually registered to vote in. Uh, the Supreme Court's got to decide whether your entire ballot should be dropped, uh, thrown out. And, and we're going to see how that plays out as the, a very similar new law in Georgia uh, has the same exact uh, provisions. Um, Julianne, it, 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 the, the, the issue here and the reason that discrimination obviously comes into play— is um, the AJC, Mark Nisi, who does an enormous amount of work crunching numbers around who votes, who doesn't, um, he, not long ago, although a majority of Georgians believe that some form of identification ought to be required for uh, uh, voting, the, the new law for absentee balloting, which no longer requires a signature match, but now says you must chose have, you must write down the number, your driver's license number, your state ID number. Uh, Nisi's research shows that that uh, will impact some 200,000 minority voters who don't have a state ID or a driver's license. And the question becomes, why would we want to disenfranchise all of those people, Julianne? Well,
0: um... Bill, we don't want to disenfranchise anybody, Um, but those, those state IDs are free, and nobody is talking about disenfranchising. People are just saying that they believe if you should be required to show identification to get on an airplane, if you should be able to show identification for a variety of different things, why in the world should you not be able to show identification when you're voting. And that is something that when it is polled, um, voter identification polls highly on both sides of the aisle. Um, But regardless, I I know that there are disagreements on both sides of the aisle where this is concerned. And I hear them and I understand them. Um, But I think ultimately, Jim is correct in his assessment that no matter how you look at this, voting rights and voting integrity depending on how you you want to phrase it going into 2022 is going to be the predominant issue of the 2022 campaign no doubt about that
4: so so, so the, the the two items in the backdrop here and i appreciate the point earlier about uh, uh, um, connecting to the historical context let's be clear one of the backdrop items here is that there's a fundamental question in American politics right now, which has to do with whether or not the franchise of the voting will be ext- restricted or expanded. All right? And the indication, there's evidence suggesting that the trend that we're moving towards under this particular, uh, uh, under the, the previous administration and, and others before uh, President Trump has been to restrict the franchise and that restriction, uh, as mentioned a moment ago, would have a, a disproportionate impact on voters of color in general, African Americans in particular. This is one of the reasons why the Civil Rights Division is so much a part of this, uh, uh, um, the, the the Georgia case, and we probably uh, can expect it to be a part of the other cases. The second backdrop item is the extent to which the Republican Party is in the context of—in the process of making the, uh, a, a judgment call about its constituency, right? There's evidence suggesting that Republican voters tend to be uh, are constricting in terms of the numbers of individuals who uh, um, have traditionally voted Republican and who can uh, and who, who can be uh, assumed to do so in the future, given, for, for example, population shifts and what have you. And so now, of course, there's an argument that says that you are seeing increasing numbers of African-American and, and, and Latino voters voting Republican, but I think those, those are very minuscule numbers. But when you place those two together and use those as a backdrop to, these, uh, to this lawsuit, you're seeing the extent to which this has to be dealt with in the context of uh, uh, um, 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 Supreme Court uh, uh, decisions going forward, and it has no choice but to uh, be addressed at that level.
1: Okay, I want to give Karen a chance here. I I do want to say I think it's true that uh, African-American voters are voting for Republicans in very, very tiny numbers. But Hispanic votes for Republicans, depending on the state, there are some states in 2020 in which the Hispanic vote for uh, Republicans was much larger uh, than we— it was surprisingly large compared to here in Georgia, where it, it, it was, in fact, as you say, Kurt, uh, still a smaller percentage of Hispanics who voted Republican. Karen, let me, if I can, before we got to get to a break, change the subject just a little in terms of this. Um, there are those who think that this federal lawsuit brought by uh, the Democratic attorney general, I mean, by the democratically appointed attorney general, Merrick Garland says he's a an independent agent, and he's shown a few signs that he is, in fact, dropping lawsuits against Donald Trump, for instance, which upset many Democrats. But um, uh, there are many people who think that, in fact, this is nothing but good news as Brian Kemp begins to uh, 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 his campaign for re-election because he can rail against the Democrats who are showing their partisanship and trying to interfere with our state. Uh, what do you think?
3: Well, I think has already been mentioned before here is, yes, this will be the hot-button issue of the 2022 election. And I think it does give Kemp... Um, a messaging that the state is defending the law that you know they felt like was um, and again I mess up on this little quote he has but it's um, making it um, harder for people to cheat and whatever that phrase is and I'm sorry to the <laughs> listeners for not getting that correct easier
1: to, vote, hard, easier to vote, harder to cheat
3: Easier to vote, harder to cheat Yes, yeah. So I think that will be a message we will hear on and on and I think you're right that um, even for the primary he will have That to talk about. And I think he may have a difficult primary challenge in the fact that he's going to have to raise money and focus on that before he can turn the attention to the general election. Um, But this will be front and center. And I think, as mentioned at the very beginning when we started the conversation, this lawsuit is not going to wrap up at the end of this year. It will take time to go through the process. And then we're also faced with that the federal bench does have a lot of conservative members on it. So it will be interesting to see how they interpret Section 2, particularly of the Voting Rights Act. How will they look at it since we don't have the other measures since the um, Shelby case. And I would just say one thing about um, the voter ID just quickly. That may be another piece of the messaging in the campaign of 2022, because what do we think is, you know, part of what Kurt mentioned is that access, the voting rights, you know, like what part will voters want to hear about, whether you need to show an ID, who has access, who is eligible to vote, because there's a recent Pew research showing that there's discussions about, you know, felony access to voting, a lot of other, you know, same-day registration, things that were being addressed, I think, at the federal level in that Senate Bill 1 that last week uh, didn't come up for a vote and debate in the Senate. All of those measures, I think, are going to play out in 2022.
1: Okay, let's get to our first break of the show, and uh, when we come back, we've got a lot more to talk about with this panel. You're listening to Political Rewind. <laughs> Karen Owen, Kurt Young, Jim Galloway, Julianne Thompson, all with us for today's Political Rewind. All right, Julianne, here we go. Donald Trump was in Ohio this weekend, and uh, back to one of his campaign-style rallies. And in the midst of his long speech, which uh, reporters who covered it said was in many ways a repeat of the hits, his hits, from uh, after the 2020 election, his grievances about the fraud that lost him the election. He said this, quote, Stacey Abrams, she said she won for governor. By the way, we might have been better if she did win for governor of Georgia. If you want to know the truth, we might have had a better governor if she did win. Julianne, Donald Trump and his uh, allies continue to take shots at Brian Kemp, as Kemp is right in the midst of trying to get his campaign up and running and energized. What's going on here, Julianne, and how is it affecting Georgia Republicans?
0: Well, as I'm sure everyone on this panel knows, there is a lot of um, infighting between various factions of the Republican Party right now. That's, That's not anything that's that's in the dark. That is out in the open, and everybody knows that that's, that that is occurring. That's um, <laughs>
1: not an exclu- That's not an exclusive for political yeah, rebound. That's, <laughs> that's not
0: any breaking news that I just gave you. Um, but but with, with regard to that comment, um, that is going to be something that the Democrats use in campaign commercials over and over and over again. Number one. Number two, and these are reasons why I think it was an extremely unfortunate comment mm-hmm. that's number one. number two um, the the bottom line that Governor Kemp needs to remember is the people whose votes he needs to win live right here in Georgia. He needs to focus on you know a, His work as the governor of Georgia, what he has done, what his accomplishments have been, how he has led the state through COVID, how he has kept Georgia open, um, our economic successes, and what he has done as probably the most conservative governor that the state has had. And so those are the issues that he needs to focus on when it comes to the Republican primary. And he needs to remember that it is not – any specific one person that is going to guide how the state votes he needs to appeal to the voters and keep his eyes on that and not as to what is going on or the comments that are going on around him
3: so uh, to piggyback a little bit on that she's absolutely right and I, the governor Kemp will have to focus on what he has done over these last few years for the state which will be I think difficult to keep all politics local within the state since so much of our political world is nationalized and how can he take the national out of Georgia that focus really on Georgia that will be a key i think to how he messaged to voters i also think juliana is really correct that that soundbite will be used often in campaign messaging, but I think the interesting piece will be, how will the Democrats really want to use that, and is that really what Stacey Abrams, if she announces, does she really want Donald Trump being her, like, voice, speaking that she would be the best governor, right? I, I don't know if that's really really who she wants to rely on, but I think it will be used. It will be a part of messaging in the primaries, and it will come out probably again in the general.
1: Jim? Well,
2: I, I think Kurt had, had wanted to jump in here.
1: Oh, all right, Kurt, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead, just really
4: quickly. I, I find this fascinating. Um, two, two great points. Uh, remember, the discussion that swirled around the uh, uh, the runoff was the extent to which the uh, the words of, of President uh, uh, Trump perhaps might have uh, 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 discouraged uh, Georgia uh, Republican voters from turning out uh, at the ballot. I'm wondering if we we can see a repeat of that, especially given the uh, what seems to be the uh, approach that uh, uh, former President Trump might take going forward in uh, in time for the 2020, 2022 gubernatorial elections.
2: Yeah. Thank you. For, uh, do you uh, let me – uh, th- if I can build on that, because I, I think I think that's exactly right. I think we're really not going to see the impact of this until, say, maybe October of 2022. Uh, and 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 how uh, Donald Trump's attitude toward Brian Kemp uh, shifts, if it does at all, I, I think. But here's here's if you're a Republican, here's what you need to worry about. You need to worry about Donald Trump uh, uh, backing somebody against Kemp. But the other factor here is is uh, Donald Trump's pick for U.S. Senate against Raphael Warnock, which is Herschel Walker, and we keep seeing signs that this is going to happen, that he's going to come in. Now, is if if you know, it, it's 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 going to be difficult for 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 Walker to to win a Republican nomination, I think. But if he does, if he does, I think uh, you're going to see. You, I think a, a a a harsh attitude by Trump toward Kemp, and a and a boosting of Herschel Walker that could discourage a lot of the Republican vote, I think.
1: That seems to be to be quite correct. The Republicans could be heading down the same road that happened during the the Senate runoffs in January, and that's by continuing to emphasize all these uh, conspiracy theories about the elections. They just discourage Republicans from uh, going to the uh, polls at all. I mean, that that strikes me, Jim, as as a a real possible uh, situation here. But, you know, Jim, here's the other thing. Um, we, we're continuing to see this campaign by Trump allies against Kemp. I think, by the way, you've got to give Kemp credit for doing what Julianne has suggested. He is doing what she said, staying focused. He's not getting flustered. He's not uh, flying off the handle. Not that that would do him any good. But he, he does seem to understand that the only way that he's got a clear path is by not getting caught up in all the Trump yeah. uh, nonsense. But what I was going to say, Jim, is you now got Corey Lewandowski saying, "What is who does Governor Trump think he is believing he has right to be crowned for renomination?" Now Rudy Giuliani's wow. coming into Georgia wow. to hold a fundraiser for, of all people, Vernon Jones. Ooh, Vernon Jones. There's an <laughs> yeah. interesting pairing. I mean, Jim, the, the Trumpian uh, rebellion against Kemp is continuing. And uh it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon no and and it's it's not in uh, the
2: governor's control uh I mean Kemp is Julian's right I mean he what you can control is what you can control and and uh, he he can't he can't uh, he can't control uh, Kemp can't control Donald Trump or the national dialogue. Uh, the other factor we have to work in here is it's likely you would have you're going to have Jody Heiss – uh uh it's a strong possibility you could have J- J- jody heis as a as a as the republican nominee for for secretary of state here
1: a strong trumper by the way we should point out let's make that direction. but but
2: if if i could just add add one one more thing you know uh just practically speaking uh Cory lewandowski is exactly wrong a sitting governor yes he is he is pretty much presumed. <laughs> he is he is pretty much guaranteed uh, a a a a a the nomination when he runs for re-election. That is that's yeah. the case in every state in the union that has multiple-term governors. Uh,
1: thank you uh, uh, for that. Um, I'll tell you what. Why don't we get our final break of the show out of the way, uh, so we can come back and uh, talk about a lot of other issues that are still. Uh, uh, pending on our agenda for today. We'll do that in just a moment. <music> Quick program note before we continue with today's show. It was 50 years ago, 5 zero, 50 years ago yesterday, that the first gay pride parade in the city of Atlanta marched down through uh, Midtown. Um, and that March was fascinating. Uh, Tamar Hallerman wrote extensively about it in the AJC this weekend. And so on tomorrow's show, we're going to look back in a nostalgic way at what that first march was like. But more important, we're going to look at what progress, what successes, what uh, problems still are in, uh, you know, in the purview of the LGBT community here in Georgia, and for that matter, nationally. So please join us for what I think ought to be a really fascinating conversation. Okay. Um, Kurt, uh, over the weekend, the supplemental $300 federal unemployment benefit ended for Georgians. The governor decided that it ought to be ended. um, and, And one of the reasons that Republicans have suggested they didn't like it is because they thought it was disincentivizing that people would rather they could make more money uh, not working uh, than uh, working. It was due to expire. It's going to expire. I think the act expires fairly soon anyway. But this token effort to extend it early, your thoughts on it?
4: Yeah, it's an interesting trope, right? We've been hearing about the disincentives to, uh, to work uh, for, for many decades, right? Um, but this is, this is important because it's taking place in the context of a global pandemic, right, um, which we are not quite sure where exactly it is. Of course, we are happy to see the numbers beginning to come down, uh, but we're also hearing frightening discussions about variant strands and what have you. And, and we know that the problem that we see, well, the, the, the result uh, the, of the declining of the problem that we see in the United States might not be duplicated in other parts of the world where, it continues to uh, grow uh, out of control now. But it, here's what I think is happening, though, Bill. I think there's also uh, uh, there's there, there, there's some complexities here that I think we, uh, we we're not uh, grasping hold of. Um, there are discussions about uh, the ability for individuals to jump back into the workforce workforce uh, uh, in the, uh, having to uh, deal at the same time with uh, child care and and also the quality of jobs, the level of, of of pay and the adequate level of that pay. But then there's another factor that I think is important, which is I wonder if, and I don't have any basis for this yet, but I'm wondering if we are in the middle of a shift in American culture, particularly as it relates to our understanding of, of work. You know, there's a point in time where you would just uh, try you. You need needed needed some income, so you would take a job, and then you would work that job until you, you you can move up the ladder. I'm wondering if there's something shifting coming out of what happened with the shutdown, uh, and how the country is perceiving uh, work going forward. Uh, you need look no, no further than <laughs> the price of lumber, and and you raise the questions at a Home Depot about why lumber is so expensive, and one of the answers is that people don't want to work. All right. Um, So I don't know. I'm not making I'm not supporting that 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 line. But I think there's something happening here that we may be uh, a bit premature in uh, the uh, uh, um, the the, the current process right now with regard to the 300.
2: Yeah, uh, one of the things that that we have to remember uh, about the the uh, pandemic collapse of of employment uh, that began uh, last year is is that it, it's and this word is is getting overused right now, but it's systemic. The whole mm-hmm. system collapsed. Okay. Uh, the system of of uh, and I'd love to I'd love to hear the two women on our panel uh, comment on this. But but child care, elder care collapse, child care collapse. And what's more is is, is, is it, it, it became very clear that the, the low-paid workers, are the they're, they're the ones with the most exposure to the public. And they're the ones that may be calculating that the risk is not worth the pay. Uh, that because, because with that variant, the Delta variant uh, expanding, they're the ones who are likely to be most in danger.
1: So Karen Jim, and then Julian.
3: I was going to say Jim's right, and the fact that a lot of this economic impact really affected women, and women were the ones who have left the workforce because they were the primary caregivers for their children when childcare centers were not open or when schools did not reopen they had to also take on the responsibility of helping their children with virtual learning or homeschooling, and so it has had an impact on them. And some of these, as Jim mentioned, kind of the frontline workers, if we think about hospitality and service industries, many women aren't returning to that because if they can find the option to do some type of online work or move into sectors where they're fulfilling, I know Amazon was hiring more, and so people are moving to those jobs in the hopes that they are more secure when a pandemic or if these variants or changes happen, again, they will not be the ones that are most affected at the beginning. Yeah, great
1: point. Julianne, jump in.
0: No, I, I just I don't really have anything to add to that. I agree with the analysis that, that the panelists have given on that.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, all right, Jim, before we run out of time, I, I mentioned at the start, you you. Uh, set over a really interesting historical perspective uh, in regard to this push that we all think is going on behind the scenes to get uh, Sonny Perdue named chancellor of the university system of Georgia. Uh, We know he didn't get the interim job, uh, but uh, Bill Torpy had a column in the uh, AJC the other day in which he suggested he's talked to enough people who know that there really is still a lot of pressure uh, the governor can play a role in uh, asking the, cha- the uh, regents to look seriously at a candidate like Purdue, and you take us back to an incident with Governor Herman Talmadge in the 40s who tried to interfere with an issue at the two universities in the state and, uh, and how that may in fact uh, be a little cautionary tale about what's going on today.
2: Right, right. The fear right now is that if you make the uh, former governor Sonny Perdue chancellor, that you would be politicizing the university system. Uh, and uh, by the way, it was Gene Talmage in 1941. Gene Talmadge, uh, he was uh, – the governors only served two years because – so uh, uh, at that point. So every – you were always running for reelection. And uh, he he focused on two academics in the Georgia university system. Uh, there was uh, – who, who he declared were both communists and integrationists. One was, uh, one was always c- uh, connected to the other here, and, and uh, you, as, as you can see, uh, it, and in many cases, it still is. But there was Walter Cocking. He was the dean of the uh, College of Education at UGA, and it was feared that he was injecting teachers with the wrong thoughts. Again, that's kind of a, a bit of a parallel here today. And he Marian wasn't Pittman,
1: teaching critical race theory, was he? <laughs> <laughs>
2: and and you had Marion yeah. Pitman, uh, uh, who was president of of a teachers college in Statesboro that would become Georgia Southern University. Uh, so he, he fired those. Uh, he fired those two fellows, and and immediately, uh, ten universities and colleges in Georgia lost accreditation. Diplomas became worthless. Now you got to remember, this was nineteen forty-one. These were white-only institutions. Uh, you know, the UGA wouldn't be be, be integrated uh, for another two decades, but it, it put a price on it. It, it put a price on uh, on on uh, inflammatory rhetoric, racial rhetoric, and 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 that price was the value of a diploma that mommy and daddy were, were paying for. Uh, this I wrote about it in 2007 because uh, you had a you had a professor over at uh, Georgia Southern, uh, Michael Bratz, write an opera about it. He composed <laughs> an opera about uh, about it. it was it's called uh, A Scholar Under Siege, uh, which uh, uh, and uh, 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 Gene Talmadge was of course the focus. Uh, 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 you had even uh, Ralph McGill as a character in there, the, the, the editor of the, of the uh, Atlanta Constitution.
1: Uh, well, it is a fascinating story. Juliette, I'm curious uh, what you think. I mean, we know that um, Sonny Perdue uh, and his cousin David played an enormous role in, in helping uh, Brian Kemp win the nomination for governor uh, because they went to Donald Trump and said, this is the guy you ought to back. And the day that Donald Trump endorsed him, it was all over. Uh, Sonny, uh, 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 Brian Kemp was going to be the Republican nominee. So there is a certain payback factor uh, here, in a way, um, that, that does come into play. Uh, so give us your thoughts on, on, on how this is all going to play out.
0: Oh, wow. I wish I had a crystal ball and I could tell you how it was going to play out. Um, it's You know, I'm not going to attempt to read the governor's mind, or, and I'm certainly not going to attempt to speak for him. But knowing the governor, the way that, that I do politically and having seen him and the way that he deals with situations like this, I believe he's going to leave this up to the Board of Regents. I, I don't believe he's going to get further involved in this. I think he's going to leave it up to the Board of Regents. I think that it's interesting, and and it's an interesting fact to note uh, that, that Teresa McCartney, who was Nathan Beal's former budget director, who is the interim chancellor, um, it's interesting to note that several of the regents that are still on the board were Nathan Deal appointees. So, and – you know, I looking at the picture, of course, I know that this is a picture that was put on the AJC uh, website by by Bill Torpy. But it is a picture of uh, Miss McCartney sitting next to Chris Riley, which of course reminded me about the board of regents that that are currently there that were appointed by Nathan Deal. So you have to wonder: Is this? Is there a back and forth between the deal people and the Purdue people? What's really going on inside there? I, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to turn out. But I do believe campus is going to leave it up to the board of regents.
1: Karen, um, we're, we're short on time, but I do want to point out that you, as a professor of the university in the university system, are going to be watching this carefully. One of the things that. Uh, some people are concerned about is Sonny Perdue in a a brief interview with Greg Bluestein, talked about he was beginning to get worried about the culture of the university system of Georgia and made it clear that he thinks that somebody ought to step in and and change the politics that are being uh, somehow uh, uh, taught on the university campuses.
3: So I think there's a lot of discussion in higher ed right now about higher ed's place in America Um, Not only on the idea, I think, that was mentioned earlier about, you know, critical race and things related to race, but just also academic freedom, free speech on college campuses. All of those are areas where someone who's going to come in to lead the university system is going to have to address it and not perhaps add more fuel to a political divide that's out there, but really, you know, work to ensure that our universities who are actually losing enrollment, and some of them, not UGAs and Georgia Tech, but the other comprehensives, you know, enrollment is dropping, and that's just because of demographics and age, but you want to encourage people to continue to come to our university system because it's the talent that we graduate that becomes our workforce, and so anyone leading needs to be a part of that and thinking about
1: that. I wish, I'm sorry, Kurt Young, I wanted to get you in here, but we are completely out of time. Uh, We'll just uh, uh, say we wish for you and Karen as university professors uh, the, the freedom to teach as you believe you should, free of politics in the months and years ahead. Uh, Karen Owen, Kurt Young, Julianne Thompson, Jim Galloway. Thank you so much for being here uh, for today's show. Of course, we're back again with another edition of Political Rewind tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill get Take care. Stay healthy. I wore a mask in stores all weekend because it just felt better to do that. But I'm vaccinated, so I'm feeling a little freer. I hope you uh, can do the same thing. See you all tomorrow.